Anyone with a functioning prefrontal cortex, eyes and ears know that knows that that's a lie. Media is going to push it anyways. The price of oil has been rising since the day he was elected because of his policies. And then, you know, to be fair, this happened with Europe. So you have increased demand coming from Europe. You have inflation, inflationary government spending has pushed the price up of oil. So that helped drive up the cost. Interestingly and ironically, because Europe has had to rely so much on kind of these dirtier sources of fuel because their their quote unquote green gifts of wind and solar were unreliable, no, almost no European country has met their Paris Climate Accord obligation that they all signed on to. You know which country has actually cut its overall emissions of carbon? Which one? The United States. The United States, despite not being a party to the Paris Climate Accords, at the end of President Trump's administration, had cut our overall CO2 emissions back to 1992-1994 levels. What's going on, guys? This is your friend Mike. I'm back here in the first episode of the Free Mike podcast here in 2022. And my special guest today is Mr. Sanjay Narayan. He is a practicing attorney here in Dallas, Texas, and a friend of mine. We work together in a lot of the political field that I dabble in outside of my profession and outside the podcast. But um, we sat down today and just discussed in an in-depth uh, method about how everything is going on around the world, especially what's going on in Ukraine. You may not think about uh, what is going on out there is, uh, is affecting you, but right now everybody, um, I mean everybody is realizing that every little thing in this market, uh, shake it up, is actually causing some some stress in their pocketbooks. Uh, as you may have noticed where our inflation is through the roof, uh, gas prices is really high right now, it's probably as high as it's ever been. There was even a meme out there that the gas prices uh, that they've seen in California is higher than the apocalypse gas prices in the movie I Am Legend, which is hilarious, but sadly, it is true. Um, uh, an uncle of mine just came here from California, visited us here in Texas, and he, he was even amazed that even here the gas prices are, are high, um, although we are about $2 uh, below them in California. However... There's a lot of things that we could all take away from this. Um, Sanjay and I, we worked uh, outside this. We worked in, a, in, a, in the Republican Party. We're conservatives. But everybody from all different facets of the of the political sphere can really learn from our discussion here because we go in-depth on what is wrong with our energy policy and what we could do right. And there is a lot of things that we could do right. Uh, that we could help a lot of people. So I hope you could uh, hope you guys give us a listen, and I hope you enjoy the ride. So I'll see you there. And here we go. All right. Uh, today we are joined with uh, by Sanjay Narayan. Sanjay is a friend of mine, and we work together in politics. Um, we've known each other for about a good about four years now, Sanjay. I think that's right. Yeah. It's yeah. Been that since long, yeah. Uh, we started out in the Texas Asian Republican Assembly, he is a. Are you a partner at Wilson? What was that? I'm a. I'm an attorney there. Yeah, attorney. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, introduce yourself yeah, uh, to the audience. Sure. Sure. So I'm a, so uh, as you mentioned, my name is Sanjay Narayan. I'm a practicing attorney here in Dallas. Grew up in Plano, 
uh, went to Duke for undergrad, went to Penn for law school, uh, interned for Senator Cornyn on the Hill in 2008. Uh, and then while in New York, worked on Governor Christie's finance and policy teams during the 2016 primary. Um, and then moved back here in uh, to Dallas at the beginning of 2017, have been involved politically. And then in uh, 2019, Governor Abbott appointed me to the Texas Radiation Advisory Board. Uh, and in that capacity, uh, the board oversees all the use of uh, radiation and nuclear in the state. So that includes, you know, you're a, you're a nurse, you're in the medical field. It includes obviously uh, nursing, uh, medical, veterinary, research facilities, universities, uh, but then, uh, you know, it also includes our two nuclear power plants in the state. Uh, one is in Urine Tarrant County. One is in, uh, one is called Comanche Peak. It's in Glen Rose, which is west of Fort Worth, uh, which has two power plants there. And, uh, and then we've got uh, one more in Bay City, which is uh, in the Galveston area. Uh, and so we oversee that. So it's been a unique opportunity. Um, and I should mention, I'm here in my personal capacity, not on behalf of the board, but this is, these are my own personal views on the topic, but I think that they're entirely relevant to especially what's going on today across the world. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about this and uh, welcome to uh, on your podcast. So thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I didn't know that we even had uh, nuclear power plants here in Texas. I thought uh, with all the talk from the uh, winter storm, uh, mm -hmm. a couple, but last year, a couple of years ago, we it it's hard to believe. A time flies, right? It was actually last year. It was last February. It was February 2021. Yeah, yeah, and everybody was talking about the uh, wind power and how. Yeah. And right now, every, the big topic right now is natural gas and oil. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I didn't know that we we had uh, nuclear power plants here. And, and you're correct. Uh, the we did. Uh, I did work as a radiology nurse for a little while. I was uh, in in interventional radiology for about four years. And uh, we did have some contact with the uh, radiology board, although it was very minimal. It was um, regarding make sure we're on par, mm -hmm. like, and make sure we uh, following protocol that, you know, we, we don't have any leaks or anything like that. Right. You, you do handle a lot of uh, highly sensitive material sure. <laughs> you know, to, uh, to treat patients. But yeah, uh, so it's, I, I'll just, you know, so it's interesting since you mentioned that you didn't realize the state has nuclear power. It's, it's, it is actually news to a lot of folks because the, the impression is that we're an entirely oil and gas state or we're, we're entirely wind, uh, you know, too much. And I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, the actual breakdown in our state is we get about 40% of our power for natural gas. Uh, that's the number one source. In fact, Texas is the... Um, has about a quarter of the nation's reserves of natural gas. Uh, the second largest source of power in the state is wind. Uh, we are actually the largest wind producer in the country, and, and there are pros and cons to that, pretty significant cons, but it, it averages to be about 25% of power. What's interesting about that is during the summer months when, especially at, you've obviously driven, anyone who's driven in West Texas has seen like acreage of, of wind turbines there on the prairie in the summertime, the wind picks up. And so wind power can actually push towards 35 or 40% of the total generation of the grid in the summer. Conversely, however, and, and we can get into this during the topic of when we discuss the winter storm or uh, if we get to that. Uh, it drops because the you know the, the physics and mechanics of the wind turbine slow down in the winter, and so it's less efficient. And so the ERCOT, which is the governing board of the grid, 
recognizes and plans for that uh, wind power will drop somewhere close to only 10%. So you can see how variable and unreliable wind is, which is kind of a predicate to much of the discussion that we'll have. Um, actually, and during the winter storm, it dropped down to 3% because 50% of the turbines in our state froze. So that's just, just to show you what what lunacy relying on wind. I'm not, I'm not against wind fine to have it, but it should be in addition to not as part of your base load. The third largest source of power in the state is a coal. Uh, it's about 20%, but it's decreasing just because natural gas until recently has been so much cheaper than coal. So it just makes sense to switch over. And the fourth largest is nuclear. Uh, it's actually about 10 to 15% of our grid. I mentioned that there are two locations of our facilities uh, Bay City, which is Comanche Peak, and then the South Texas project in Bay City. Uh, and again, those provide about 10 to 15% of power. And during the winter storm, they were the most reliable source of fuel. Uh, that's important that's, to that's interesting. How old are these uh, reactors, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. Uh, so just to round out the circle, the fifth largest source of power in the state is solar. It's less than three. You asked a very good question, which is how old are our nuclear power plants? It is important to note that in the United States, there have the federal authorities, which are FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the NRC, they're under Nuclear Regulatory Commission, have not allowed the construction of a new nuclear facility since the 1970s. That means every existing facility in the country is relying on 1970s era technology. They have allowed in 2013 expansion of existing facilities. So that is not a new location that's building another plant or a cooling tower at one of your existing facilities. Just to give you a sense, and you ask an excellent question, and the two power plants in our state were both developed and constructed in the 1970s. Um, their commissions have been extended. Uh, so there, they will be in operation until twenty third in the twenty thirties and twenty forties. When un, yeah, you know, unless new uh, approvals come down, they'll either have to shutter or they'll have to ask for additional uh, lengthening of their commission. Uh, hopefully, in the interim, we'll get approval to build more nuclear power plants. Because one thing I want to impress is like how important and reliable nuclear power is, and how safe it is and how little harm it actually can be, uh, despite kind of the fears about it, and just how necessary it is, in addition to natural gas, that nuclear is critically important to maintain energy security and independence for our, not only for our state, but for our country. Yeah, um, uh, people don't realize this. If it was built back in the early 70s, it's almost 50 years since we last right. built anything. And uh, I could imagine the technology now to keep this, these plants safe is much further. I mean, looking at the period uh, between 1920s to the 1960s alone, all that, uh, the, the, pro the progress of, of making more efficient energy machines was, was incredible. I imagine now with nuclear is the same. Um, oh, yeah. And I, mean, in the, I mean, within the last two years, we've had private companies send people into space. You know, Elon Musk has developed this type of technology. This is the, it's in the, we're in the 2020s. The, the technology for developing nuclear power has grown by leaps and bounds and other countries are doing it. It's not like we, it's not as if, you know, the technology has remained stagnant across the globe. And so we're no better or worse off. Other countries are continuing to push forward with this. Uh, you know, there's, there's, China has become the largest polluter in the world on the same track as their 
proposing to build 20, excuse me, 40 new coal fire power plants in the next 20 years, which by the way, the amount of carbon dioxide that'll be emitted by those 40 coal fire power plants will more than make up for whatever cuts in emissions that AOC and her squad want the United States to reduce our standard of living by. China will make up that pollution in three days. They're going to build 100, they are proposing to build 150 new nuclear power plants over the next two to three decades. So the technology exists. And there are things called even small modular reactors, which use up a fraction of the total land that nuclear power plants do today. So the technology is grown by leaps and bounds like anything else. So we should be deploying that widely. Um, and it's unfortunate that we, that we haven't yet. So what is it that's that's stopping this from happening? As I like, I mean, I, I could I can't imagine we don't have the capital to to pull together from the private sector and be able to lobby the government. Hey, you know what? We have a group of people that want to make an efficient uh, nuclear power plant. Why why has it in, has it in fifty years this happened? What what is stopping this? Is it just politics? Is it is it just the bureaucracy uh, or combination? Or what? It's all of the above. It's it's I, I, so it's helpful to kind of discuss what the pros and cons of kind of nuclear power are. So, you know, just, yeah. So just as like a two second science lesson on the way that nuclear power is is developed uh, overall, every reactor in the world operates through a science of something called fission. And fission is the separation of uh, a nuclear atom. Uh, Typically it's used plutonium or uranium. Uh, And what happens in this uh, process is a neutron, so uh, they're, they're, the subatomic particles within an atom are the electrons which have the negative charge, then you've got a nucleus, and inside the nucleus, you've got a proton and a neutron. Proton is positive charge, neutron has no charge. A neutron is shot at one of the plutonium or uranium atoms, whatever is the choice for that particular facility. It splits the atom, releasing heat and radiation. That creates uh, more heat and radiation, it causes a chain reaction that causes other atoms to split. And so you've got a self-sustaining chain reaction. All of that is happening within a cauldron. Uh, That cauldron is submerged in water. Uh, As it gets hot, it creates steam. Steam rises, turns turbines and creates power. So that's how nuclear power works. The holy grail of all of this, you know, you'll hear people talk about it is nuclear fusion. Fusion, it would be the fusing or the combination of the, uh, new, um, uranium and or plutonium atoms together. That would release a ton of energy. That hasn't yet been done safely. They're testing that. That hasn't yet been done. I mean, uh, nuclear fission is used to power most of the United States submarine fleet for the United States Navy, as well as for most of our most of our ships. If it's safe enough for midshipmen, it should be safe enough for us. Um, and so. There are pros and cons to nuclear power. It's important to address them. I'll start with the cons. The cons are people's fear of nuclear waste. Um, And so one of, I mentioned that the only byproduct of nuclear power is steam. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's also spent fuel rods that that are uh, emitted after the production of power. However, the volume of waste is significantly lower than what people actually think. Right now, the amount of waste is stored at all of our 70, 80 plus nuclear power plants across the country. That's a big security risk, right? You would want, that means it's in Vermont, it's in Texas. Here in Texas, most of the waste is actually stored in West Texas in a city called Andrews, 
Um, it's actually located close to the Permian Basin, which isn't totally ideal, um, but they're within safe bunkers. The amount of waste that's actually exists in the, in the United States right now for all of our nuclear power plants combined is 85,000 tons, about 2,000 tons a year is added to that. To help picture that visually, the amount of waste in the country would fit in a single football field, 10 yards high. That's for all the existing waste in the country. So it's, it's not, when you compare it to the amount of energy that's produced relative to the amount of waste, it's actually not that much. It can be handled. Second kind of fear is the fear of radiation. And this is completely understandable, especially, you know, people hear about Three Mile Island in the 1980s. They read about Chernobyl. Obviously, you know, this, it's in a war zone right now. There are six nuclear power yeah, plants right. in Ukraine currently that the, you know, the, where there's fighting around. Uh, and then uh, the Fukushima reactor in Japan. Uh, important to note about all those three kind of the most recent kind of nuclear meltdowns, all of them were either due to human omission or due to, you know, an act of God. In the case of the Fukushima reactor, the, the reactor didn't melt down on its own. It melted down because it was flooded by a hundred year tsunami. Uh, and so there's a concern about radiation. What people don't actually think about is, it, I guess, a popular misconception is that like millions of people were flooded with radiation poisoning following Chernobyl or after Fukushima. And in no way is this to minimize the amount of ecological and or environmental devastation that occurred. It did. It destroyed habitats that are still only now recovering. But the actual number of people who got radiation poisoning from Chernobyl, for instance, is 136 emergency workers, of whom 28 died. You know, rest in peace to all of them. They're their brave souls for for going in and, and helping to fix the problem. But it wasn't the hundreds of thousands of people that you might hear kind of misinformed on this topic. Uh, and then the third kind of negative cost of nuclear power is something that you mentioned, which is due to the high regulations that surround nuclear power, the concerns about safety and people's understandable fear about radiation and the amount of waste, it is prohibitively expensive to build a nuclear power plant. Not The amount of capital investment does exist. There are people who want to fund it. It's just a lot of money. It's a lot of regulatory red tape that has to be crossed in order to get to your permit process. And so it kind of results in a, a production of energy, which has a very high upfront cost, but a very low marginal cost. So what do I mean by that? It means it's very expensive to create the power plant, to, to get the materials necessary and to start the chain reaction. But then once you've started the chain reaction, the energy is next, next to costless, right? So compare that to a, a hydraulic fracturing well. You know, a hydraulic fracturing well can cost five to six figures. That's not cheap, but you have a relatively low upfront cost relative to a kind of higher marginal cost of maintaining the source of energy because it's highly price dependent. If the cost of oil today is $170, which it is thanks to Joe Biden and thanks to what's going on, then, you know, more people are going to flood the market and they're going to start drilling. If the cost is $30 a barrel, then it's uneconomical un to produce the additional barrels. It's highly variable. I just um, uh, read recently about, I think Joe Biden was said, uh, he, he nixed all those con federal contracts, I think, for, uh, for new drilling and even the current ones right now. And uh, I think that was two weeks before that invasion. So I think we're yeah. pretty much screwed right now. He, he, 
Uh, yeah. And before I get to the pros of nuclear power, because I think that's important to inform your listeners too. Yeah, Joe, speaking of this administration, I mean, two years ago, under the Trump administration, the United States was the largest producer of oil and natural gas in the world. Now, we still technically are, but we exported more, but we're not producing as much as we did then. Uh, and we were exporting oil and natural gas to the rest of the world. Today, the day Joe Biden took office, the day he took office, he reversed the Keystone pipeline, which would have provided at its completion 800,000 barrels of oil a day to the United States from a friendly country. Although under Justin Trudeau, it's questionable exactly how friendly Canada is to democratic liberties and, and you know, norms. But well, well, the Canadians Canada, were pretty pissed off at that. I know, yeah, I remember. But, but but there's no compare as between Canada and Russia. There's no comparison, right? Canada is a friendly country; they're mm -hmm. a NATO ally. So, uh, and and that would have created hundreds of thousands of American jobs to build that pipeline. Uh, yet last week, the you, prior to the ban on imports of oil from Russia, the United States imported five hundred thousand barrels of oil from Russia per day. Per day, if you you just use a hundred dollars a barrel. Okay, that's $50 million that the United States was paying to Russia, to Gazprom, to help finance their invasion of another sovereign country. But this is how twisted our energy policy is. And not only did Joe Biden stop the Keystone pipeline, he reversed the sanctions on the Nord 2 pipeline, so which allowed for the free flow of Russian gas to bypass Ukraine into Germany which for years has been a compliant state for Russia. So at the same time as he shut down production of natural gas in the United States, he was increasing Russia's production of natural gas, making them more powerful, making their ability to blackmail the United States and Western Europe even stronger than what it is. And now look, he, he could solve this problem tomorrow by saying, I was wrong, I made a mistake. My left flank has been totally radical, I'm ending that policy today. I'm released. And, and by the way, I should mention he he stopped all leasing of permits on federal land, which in states like North Dakota is where 500,000 barrels of natural gas and oil were developed, uh, you know, daily or yearly. So he could stop that tomorrow. He could say, "I'm reopening all federal lands for permitting. I am in, I'm expediting permits for existing facilities. I am reversing my position on the Keystone Pipeline." And I'm going to urge American, you know, uh, developers to drill as much oil and natural gas as possible. And we're going to speed up the development of nuclear power. If he did that tomorrow, the price of oil would drop by $50. And people on the news will say, oh, but the oil supply won't come online for another six to eight months. That's beside the point. The oil market is priced on futures contracts. It's the expectation of supply that comes online. And that will happen tomorrow, but he won't do it because he's beholden to the radical left, which doesn't care about energy security. They don't care about the environment. Because where do you think it's cleaner to produce natural gas? It's not as if the, the need for natural gas and oil and even nuclear power has gone away. They're just going to get it from Venezuela, which he's begging to produce more. They're going to get it from Saudi Arabia, which yesterday executed 95 people in a beheading and produces it dirtier. They're going to get it from Russia. So those countries produce natural gas and oil much dirtier than we do. We have technology that allows us to extract it as cleanly as possible. So even if you cared and you said, I don't want this type of fuel, you'd want it to be developed here. 
You'd want American workers to be doing it with our superior technology, but they don't care about that. They have an almost religious messianic devotion to the idea that wind and solar, these weather, and, and I, I want conservatives and, and just average folks, period, to start calling these fuels for what they are. They are weather-dependent, non-reliable, renewable sources of fuel. Because when you phrase it like that, you'll realize that wind and solar cannot make up the full spectrum of energy needs for our country. That is including when battery technology is made. The only way that our country can be self-sustaining is for us in the medium and intermediate term to maximize our development of natural gas, which is clean, cleaner burning than oil and, and, uh, and coal, in which the United States has you know, we are blessed with the supply of natural gas in this country and in the long term to develop nuclear power. Less than 20 years ago, France got over 75% of their power from nuclear. There is no excuse that a country that lost two world wars should be so far ahead than we are in this country. We can do it. It requires American jobs, American ingenuity. We can become energy independent, secure, and have a cleaner environment tomorrow if we had the political will and people were informed to do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's and speaking of being, uh, it's almost like a religious cult. And, and you know, I've I've called these guys cults before uh, on online and Twitter. It's like almost they they want us to they want us to to be bogged down in the in these in these nonsense of uh, of trying to get these renewables. Just shoot shoot ourselves in the foot and just to impress other people in the world. Which it really doesn't. It it really doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't garner any respect from anybody else. All no, it, it does is making them feel good. No, and, and that's right. It's it's empty virtue signaling, and worse, it ignores the actual science. I want to read you some data actually, because I, I want to get to the pros on nuclear power oh, yeah, yeah. just just quickly to show you how fake a lot of the concern is about you know nuclear power versus others, or about re over reliance on wind and solar to the detriment of others. So. I mentioned that uh, nuclear power is 100% clean, right? The only byproduct is steam and then the spent fuel rods of which I discussed the volume. It's actually cleaner than wind and solar over the total life cycle. According to the European Union, wind and solar release four to five tons of carbon dioxide per annual electric consumption for 160 people. Coal is 820 tons, nuclear is three tons. I mentioned that nuclear is 100% reliable. It's not weather dependent. It runs 24 7, 365. That cannot be said for wind and solar. And we can get to the winter storm uh, you know, later on and discuss the, you know, the, the uh, efficacy of wind in that and how that actually helped lead to, our, our, you know, to the power crisis that we had. And nuclear is also one of the safest sources of energy. If you, again, according to the same European Union data, for every 27,000 customers, coal causes about 24.6 deaths when you consider asthma and, and the mining process. Natural gas is 2.8 deaths, nuclear is 0.07, and wind is 0.04, and solar is 0.02. So it's marginally higher than that. And then there's a very small footprint for nuclear power. Uh, you know, like I said, anyone who's driven in West Texas has seen acres and acres of kind of ugly wind turbines that are kind of marring the, the pristine landscape. You know, folks have seen solar panels, which are very hot and reflective, you know, placed all over like entire mountainsides that render that entire area inaccessible, not only for human recreation, but also for animals to go through. And so, you know, according to the Sierra Club, this is not, you know, 
this is not you know, Wall Street Journal, Fox News data, millions of migratory birds and animals every year are killed by the propelling wind turbines, as well as by the hot reflective solar panels. A lot of birds actually fly into them. That's not to say we shouldn't use them. It's to say, be realistic about what the costs are. But if you look at the amount of footprint compared to a nuclear power plant, in order to create the exact same amount of energy from one nuclear power plant, you would require 75 square miles of solar panels, just to give you a sense of like the amount of energy that can be created from such a small place. And so, yeah, it is, it is bizarre because if you really cared about, if you cared about two objectives, or even if you just cared about one objective, if you cared about American workers, okay, you'd, you'd be pro-nuclear. And then if you cared about being pro-environment and wanting to be as clean as possible in a sustainable way, you'd be pro-nuclear power. So it's telling that a lot of the environmental lobby, even today, is still against nuclear power. And it's, it's, it's beyond, it, it cannot be explained other than kind of a cultish devotion to wind and solar at the expense of everything else. And, you know, as the world develops, as we develop and use more electric vehicles, uh, we're going to need a sustainable power grid. And right now, the majority of our grid is uh, not, the plurality of our grid is powered by natural gas, but we still get a good component of it from wind. And that's fundamentally unreliable. So if we want to increase the reliability and overall the conditions for the development and uh, adaptation for the use of electric vehicles, which I'm all in support of, and battery recharging technology, which is all necessary, we need a stable grid. And the only way to have a stable grid is, like I said, natural gas, which can be, which is scalable. When, when more power is needed, you burn more natural gas. Uh, when uh, the problem is with wind and solar, if you need more power, you can't just huff and puff on a wind turbine and blow it faster. You can't like get out your flashlight and sign it, shine it on a solar panel. It's not going to work. If it's cloudy or it's not windy, you don't get power. So, but nuclear solves that. Natural gas solves that. So we need to be focused on a reliable power grid. That'll make us energy independent and be able to wean off our dependence and not be spending, you know, $50 million a day sending it to countries that hate us or having solar panels developed in countries like China, which develops 90% of our solar panels, or building these, you know, 90, 90 foot long wind turbines that at the end of their useful life have to go into the trash bin, you know, and cause a huge volume of their own waste. We should be focused on safe, clean, reliable power for the domestic and energy and economic security of our country. And, you know, I'm a strong proponent of natural gas and nuclear as being really the only way scientifically and economically to do it. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. I don't know if you've been to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I, I have, actually. Yeah, there's a museum there. Uh, it's the Museum of Nuclear Science. Yeah, Los Alamos is yeah. just out of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was there, I would say, uh, in December, and I passed by it. And it was so fascinating when I when you walk in there, and in, this, in all in the 50s and 60s, they would tell you that every, all the scientists are saying that the future is nuclear nuclear power, nuclear fission. It's the cleanest, yeah. it's the best. And then suddenly, right as, as they reached the 70s, it just all dropped off. And I, I don't see much uh, development, anything after that. And, no, uh, and, and, and we haven't. And, you know, it, it really is to, unfortunately, to politics. You know, the left has 
since kind of the environmental revolution in the 1960s and 70s has really, and, and it's just gotten worse now, has really been focused on like a couple main topics. One is the elimination of carbon-based fuels to the detriment of everything else. There's the total focus on reducing oil and gas and fossil fuels uh, for people to use. It's been focused on eliminating nuclear. They have seized on the collective imagination of people you know, entirely reasonably on the idea of nuclear radiation, volume of waste, is it safe, and not actually answering the questions. And the problem is, for too long, folks like you and me, and folks just generally, we've never had a response to that, right? Folks don't have all day to research these things. They live lives, they have their kids, they've got soccer practice to go to, you know, people have bills to pay, they can't be focused on like, it ends and out, but it's important. It is important because our like ability to live secure lives and not have $5 gasoline, $6 gasoline and be beholden to outside forces is reliant on us being informed on these issues. And for years, when people would say nuclear is unsafe, that would end the inquiry, the, the conversation would die because there was no response to that. So my hope is that by you know talking to you and, and your listeners, will come away with facts to be able to respond to these because we have to combat them because it's not just these aren't theoretical concerns anymore they're real life concerns that have oh, huge impacts on our daily life and so you know another thing that at the you know so cutting fossil fuels cutting nuclear endlessly subsidizing it's not just support of wind and solar that's one thing i support wind and solar too if somebody wants to put up a wind turbine somebody wants to build a solar panel, go for it. Like I'm all for it. Don't subsidize it. They're, they're pushing subsidies. And the worst part is, is that the state of Texas has also been subsidizing additional production of megawatts of wind, which is why politicians in our state from both parties have actively you know, touted the fact that Texas has become the largest uh, producer of wind in the country. The problem is is that that's increased the unreliability of our grid relative to other states. So when you look and you see like, so yesterday was a pretty cold day, right? In New York, you don't ever have power outages in the Northeast, even though they get much colder than we do. Why is that? Because they don't actually use that much wind power. They get over 80% of their heating power comes from natural gas. So the same people that laugh and, and like mock others for not supporting wind, their own electricity providers, Con Ed and others, know this. They already get most of their power during the coldest months of the year from oil and natural gas. They're laughing at us. They're laughing at us because we get so much from wind and so wind and solar. And you know, this, this all has like real world consequences, right? They want to increase the gas tax. They want to increase the consumption tax. They want to decrease the supply and readily ready availability of natural gas and oil. What does that do? It, at the same time, it decreases consumption, decreases demand, and it decreases supply. So you end up with an inflationary cycle. And so at the same time as they're pushing these corruptive policies here, China is telling us, you know, to, to go, you know, giving us the middle finger. They're building 40 new uh, coal fire power plants in the next 20 years. Like I said, like whatever cut in emission that we have here is going to be more than made up for what they're doing. And the impact of these policies, I think, is most readily seen in Europe, uh, where exactly like what you said, I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, 
when you go back to the 1950s and 60s, nuclear power was like this new thing that we're going to power the rest of the world. We're going to do it cleanly. France, like I said, by even as recently as 15 years ago, got over 70% of their fuel uh, uh, energy from nuclear power. The same was true in, uh, in other uh, Western European countries. But then the Fukushima reactor uh, melted down after the, the typhoon, I think in 2010, 2011. A devastating typhoon. It was to most 2011, of I think. It was, yeah, and that reactor was actually built in, I think, I think it was 1971. So okay. it's, it's almost the same age as the ones we have here in Texas. Well, I did, I didn't know the age of it, but yeah. So it was, uh, so that was a devastating typhoon to you know the Philippines, uh, Japan, uh, all of these countries got hit monstrously by this typhoon, and it flooded it. The environmental left seized on that and got countries to start shuttering their nuclear power plants. Germany went so far as sh shutting down 90% of their existing nuclear power plants. Today, they only have three in operation, three. And you know, instead, the proposition was made, we can substitute the deficit of power with wind and solar power. Of course, that's not possible. What is kind of ironically what's happened is uh, they've had to rely more on dirtier sources of fuel like coal and gas from Russia and from other places that are you know, not friendly countries to supply the power. So actually last year in the summer of 2021, uh, due to whatever weather conditions and weather patterns existed over Northern Europe, uh, there was a, a deficit of wind and sunlight over the North Sea and most of continental Northern Europe. The North Sea is between Norway and uh, United Kingdom. It's actually like a hotbed of development historically of oil and natural gas. Norway, by the way, is actually one of the largest producers of oil in the world, despite its kind of glistening reputation. That's how, that's how they've been able to fund a very lavish social welfare net. Bernie Sanders will never tell you that. Like A lot of their money comes from oil and natural gas, which is fantastic. I mean, fine, but, but to tell the truth about what it is. Um, but they produce a lot of wind and solar there because it's wide open seas, but there was less of it. And so what happened is there was a huge deficit of power. And I don't know if you recall, but there was a lot of talk uh, on CNBC and, and on Fox Business about European countries rushing to, on, on perhaps having to ration the amount of power that people were going to be able to use in their homes. And so what that, they did yeah. instead is they immediately rushed to restart their their shuttered coal fire power plants, which they had been closed due to this kind of, we're going to be green. Even Boris Johnson, who is a quote unquote conservative, had begun shutting down a lot of natural gas and coal fire power plants. They rushed to start reopening them. And all these European countries rushed into the spot market to buy natural gas and oil to heat uh, and provide power. That pushed the price up last summer. If you recall, a lot of this kind of Increase. I know that Biden and Jen Psaki, who's a professional liar, are going around now saying that this is Putin's price increase. Anyone with the prefrontal, anyone with the functioning prefrontal cortex, eyes and ears, know that knows that that's a lie. Media is going to push it anyways. The price of oil has been rising since the day he was elected because of his policies. And then, you know, to be fair, this happened with Europe. So you have increased demand coming from Europe. You have inflation, inflationary government spending has pushed the price up of oil. So that helped drive up the cost. Interestingly and ironically, because Europe has had to rely so much on kind of these dirtier sources of fuel, because their, their 
quote unquote green gifts of wind and solar were unreliable, no, almost no European country has met their Paris Climate Accord obligation that they all signed on to. You know which country has actually cut its overall emissions of carbon? Which one? The United States. The United States, despite not being a party to the Paris Climate Accords, at the end of President Trump's administration, had cut our overall CO2 emissions back to 1992-1994 levels. We are the only one of the few industrialized countries in the world of any size that can make that representation. So while all these countries, while Greta Thunberg and John Kerry fly around in their private jets to you know, Glasgow and Davos to go lecture and, and hector Americans about how, how horrible we are, about how terrible our country is, the United States stands alone as having actually not only increased our standard of living here, but cut our overall emissions of carbon dioxide back at this point, 30 years level. We're the only country to do it. Why? Because we've, you know, in part, we've maintained our existing supply of nuclear power is about 20% of the total production in the country. But more importantly, has been the development of hydraulic fracturing and the development of cleaner burning natural gas across the country. It, it is truly one of the most remarkable scientific achievements and engineering accomplishments probably of the last 15 to 20 years. And it's one that almost nobody knows about. And the problem- I hope, I hope we can see that again. You know, that, th those years in a Trump admin was, were, were phenomenal. Um, and, and I remember like listening to Greta Thunberg and now like, like even the current uh, chief of staff in the White House, you know, they were saying that, you know, we should increase, uh, we should do uh, do more to increase the price of, of gas. And, and bringing it back to what you were saying about $5, $6 gas, you know, the impact, the economic impact on the everyday lives, especially like, you know, with, with people living who uh, who are to drive to work, like single mothers who have to spend a lot on their kids, it's it's going to cut, cut a lot in their, in their pockets. And, you know... It's funny, like, you know, Greta and these guys up there in Washington laughing about this, probably. I'm sure this is probably, it, it almost like this is what they want. And they, they want it, this it, price it, to it, go up. My, Michael, it is what they want. It, it is what they want. It, they want the, the unstated objective of all of these policies is of higher gas prices, of higher gas taxes, is they want to increase pain on the American consumer in order to spread their lie that the way out of this problem is to rely even more on wind and natural gas, that the way to solve your problem of having your Ford F-150, which you need to, to tow heavy machinery around, or that you need your SUV to tow your three or four kids to and from soccer practice, they don't want you to do that. They want you to, to feel the pain so that that way you will blame yourself and you will blame the existing policies of conservatives and Republicans and saying you helped create the problem. And the problem is that the solution that they want instead of that is to increase reliance on wind and solar. So these are the same people that, and I'll just jump into this because this is a, a useful segue. Last winter, February, 2021, we have the, the great winter storm in Texas, right? We have like sub-freezing temperatures, but we have two inches of snow, two inches of snow. Michael, you and I used to live, I think you used to live in New York, right? For a period of time. I lived in New York and Yonkers for a little, for yeah. a, over the winter. <laughs> yeah, and my wife and I, we lived in Manhattan for a number of years. If, if 
I was embarrassed actually to show pictures of how little snow there was to my law school roommate who's from Cleveland. I almost didn't want to show it to him when he texted me. It's like, what is going on in Texas? I was like, I have like a blade of grass that is covered by cold outside, but it was freezing. And two inches of snow brought this state, which we pride ourselves. We have a reputation as being this energy independent state, oil and natural gas. We have plentiful energy. We're we're free market. We, we, we have a high standard of living. We were brought to our knees because of two inches of snow and freezing temperatures. We became an international laughing stock, a domestic laughing stock. You know, we in Texas, we look at states like California and, and, you know, folks are coming here, you know, don't keep voting for the same mistakes. You know, they have power outages every year. It's like a yearly occurrence every summer. They have oh, yeah, kind of the, rolling, the rolling blackouts. blackouts. <laughs> yeah, they have rolling. Exactly. It's famous. It's like, it's literally the most resource rich state in the country. Beautiful scenery cannot be matched, like amazing weather. It's perfect. But due to human activity and, and kind of human political choices, they have rolling blackouts every year. There's no excuse for that other than the fact that they have been shutting down their nuclear power plants and natural gas facilities. In fact, California is set to close their last uh, operational nuclear power plant at Diablo Canyon by the end of this year. New York State is actually planning on closing its existing nuclear facilities over the next two to three years. So, so we should be going in the opposite direction, right? But a lot of kind of Democrats and leftists in, in this country have continued this lie that nuclear power is too dangerous and we need to substitute towards wind and solar. And so, you know, how did Texas end up in the predicament that when we mock other states for having this problem, how did we end up there? I mean, one of the biggest problems is that there has been a federal as well as a state level subsidy for the addition and tax credit for the production of additional megawatts of energy from wind and solar. That is a subsidy that is not available to natural gas. It is a subsidy that is not available to nuclear. So think about what's happened. Over the last you know, 10 years, as our state has exploded in population, the state's power grid has added about 20,000 megawatts of energy. That's enough to power millions of homes. Almost all of that increase has come from wind and solar. Very little of that increase has come from natural gas facilities or from nuclear. As I mentioned, we haven't built a new nuclear power plant in almost 50 years You know, at this point. So the winter storm comes. And I mentioned at the, at the outset that the physics during the cold weather months are that wind just doesn't operate as well in the winter as it does in the summer. And so ERCOT's assumption is that we'll get about 10%, 10 to 15% of our power from wind during the cold weather months. It's not what happened. 50% of our wind turbines at the coldest point actually froze. And so less than 3% of our total grid power was coming from wind. And so what did we have to do? We had to increase you know, the production of other sources of fuel. If you listen to the retelling by the media of what happened, New York Times is a classic example of this. Texas Tribune did it also. Uh, you know, Dallas Morning News, others, they put out articles that, oh, you know, Texas is so reliant on natural gas. Look at this, the amount of megawatts of natural gas actually lost more power than wind. That's a convenient misreading of statistics. It, it, as a true statement, it's true. As, excuse me, as a factual statement, it's true. Natural gas lost more operational megawatt capacity than wind did. But that's 
just a math problem. It's the same as saying 10% of 100, 10 is larger than 50% of 10, which is five. Natural gas produces so much more power relative to wind that if yes, some went offline, but the it's still produced way more energy than wind. And so if you actually look at what happened during the winter storm, we had to increase our natural gas production by 457%. Oil, same thing, close to 100%. And nuclear power remained near, near the same. One of the problems is why some of the natural gas power plants actually went offline is, yes, some of the, uh, the, the um, uh, fuel pipelines froze. Some of the operational capacity froze. And that's something that the Texas legislature has dealt with in part by kind of weatherization, but it's still not sufficient. They need to do more. And so let's talk about nuclear, which I mentioned at the beginning. We have four reactors at the two power plants. One of the reactors at the Bay City facility actually shut down. It detected a drop in the core temperature at the facility, and it went into a self-protection mode, which should demonstrate to everyone how safe these facilities are. Without any human intervention, the facility went into a shutdown mode to protect the reactor. So we had three existing reactors that remained operational in capacity. And according to ERCOT data, this is not according to Sanjay Narayan's data, this is not according to you know whatever, nuclear power produced at 80% of its expectation. So it produced, you, would have, you would have thought it was 75%, right? Three out of four. It actually produced 80% of expectation. It was the most reliable source of fuel in the state of Texas. If we, four reactors, becoming three, provide 10% of our grid. If we had 20, we would provide over 50% of the power in the state. We would have 80% reliability, even under a 200 year freeze. That's, those are the types of policies that we need in this state to develop energy security and independence. And so, you know, when you hear folks say we need to rely more on wind and gas, no, we don't. We don't need to rely more on, uh, excuse me, wind and solar. We don't need to rely more on wind and solar. If you want to add wind and, wind and solar as an additive to your existing baseload capacity, and when I say baseload, I mean what you count on to operate 100% of the time or as close to 100% of the time. You want that to be weather independent, reliable, scalable sources of fuel. That is natural gas, that is coal, that is oil, that is nuclear. That is not weather dependent, non-reliable, renewable source of fuel like wind and solar. Have it as an addition. Don't subsidize it at the expense of the reliable source of fuel. And that's the problem. We have, we're, we're so like wanting to pat our backs that we're producing this quote unquote clean source of fuel. The problem is then when you end up in a situation when you need the fuel, you've got to go back to the dirtier source of fuel. So just have the reliable source of fuel from the beginning. And then you and you wouldn't end up in this situation. So, so, so you mentioned ERCOT. Is ERCOT the uh, agency that also kind of uh, oversees nuclear power here in, in Texas, or is it just so they so they oversee the grid, and so uh, they ensure kind of the the power capacity in the grid. So, yeah, tangentially they oversee all. They are, I mean, they're obviously heavily involved with the operation of the facility to make sure that power is being produced. Um, and so, yeah, they are also an overseeing regulatory body of of the of almost all the power generation in the state. I remember during the uh, winter storm, right after the, the big, uh, a lot of finger fingers were pointed at them. 
and uh, a lot of blame was actually lobbied at, at them. And you know, some are saying that oh, some of these guys don't even live in Texas. Yeah, so, no, they didn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, like it's it, uh, everyone likes to everyone likes to point blame, and I'm not going to sit here and say that some of those critiques weren't appropriate. Uh, or caught could have done a, a better job notifying people or letting them know, hey, your power is likely going to be cut for the next two hours. You know, plan accordingly. You know, I've got I've got two young kids at home. We got no notification before our power went out. It dropped to forty degrees here. We had to leave and go stay at a friend's house. Like this is this is Texas. This is the United States of America. This is a first world country. You're from the Philippines. My parents are from India. Rolling power blackouts are an expectation in developing countries. That is, my parents and your parents didn't immigrate to the United States to be sitting in freezing cold weather in one of the wealthiest, if not the, the wealthiest country in the history of mankind, and a state that prides itself on energy, you know, freedom. That should never, it's inexcusable. It should never have happened. It can never happen again. And the problem is, is uh, according to you know, Texas Public Policy Foundation has a really great resource called Life Powered. So it's a think tank within TPPF. Folks who study this issue, the amount of demand for electricity actually is lower in the winter than it is in the summer. And so for years, you know, people who've been studying this always knew at some point it was a high likelihood that Texas would end up in a situation where demand for power would exceed the supply and we'd have to go to rolling blackouts. But the expectation was always that it would happen during the summer, not during the winter. We got lucky last year, actually. We had a relatively mild summer. I tell my wife that she's from New Jersey. She doesn't believe me. I'm like, 90 degrees is like perfect weather. Like, you're not going to beat it. But like, we missed out on a couple. We didn't get any tripled to my recollection. I don't think we really had like 100, 105, 110 degree. Yeah, it was actually a cooler summer than than normal. Right. And so if, but if it had been, if we had gotten like a typical or like an extraordinary Texas summer, we would have, that's when you're going to feel it when the power is going to be stressed. And so we've got to make sure that we, and and so like for our state, we should stop subsidizing wind and solar at the expense of others. We need to immediately do as much as we can to help facilitate the development of natural gas and oil in the state. We need to do the same for nuclear power. And we need to, you know, continue the weatherization of the grid to make sure that it's reliable because it's inexcusable that it happened here. And the Democrats, they want to move to a carbon-free, this is in the state and nationally. Joe Biden has promised, he can promise whatever he wants. The stated objective is to have a carbon-free economy by the year 2035 with zero new nuclear power plants. You can read the tea leaves. What they want is to build wind and solar everywhere. And so what we had a, you know, for a couple of weeks here in Texas and you know, insufferable conditions, that's going to be a nationwide problem unless we are able to combat the lies and disinformation to stop it. Well, we just had an election uh, recently in Texas of uh, the primaries. Uh, granted, it's not it's not the uh, general election yet, but but where do you see all this is going to? Like how, like our energy policy in Texas, how, how is that going to be affected in the next couple of years, especially as we head up to 2024? You know, I think so much of because we're the minority party nationally i think i haven't seen very much discussion of this topic 
of energy security come up really since the special session and then now because of obviously what's happening between Russia and Ukraine and then the price of gas here. I really haven't seen a lot of folks really tout the usefulness of nuclear power. I know online, like Dan Crenshaw has been good on talking about this topic, but I just don't see enough voices advocating for it. And I don't know whether that's just from, hey, this is like a higher you know, there's, there's lower hanging fruit that's available for us to, you know, to go on offense right now. And then, you know, I I just, I'm not sure on exactly what the dynamics have been on every, everybody's primary. I think there are different issues, but I think everyone's kind of focused on what's happening at the national level and not at kind of talking about the reliability of the electricity grid is not a particularly sexy topic until it becomes important. And then, then it is, a really sexy topic so you're because then yeah but then then it's very important and it's important now you know six dollar gas is not you know we're going to have internal combustion engine cars you know as a majority of driving for the next 20 to 30 years and then it's going to start transitioning to electrical vehicles as they become cheaper um but it's important to note that there are costs you know in in, in doing that and so the reliability of the grid is going to continue to be an issue and so uh you know i think we're always on defense on the topic. And when I say we, I mean just conservatives and, and normal folks who, who, who are rational on this topic. We're always on defense because the left and the media have an excellent way of, of framing the use of language to artificially construct their vision of reality. Classic example, and they do it with gender ideology. They do it with critical race theory quote-unquote anti-racist oh, they own the media you know they do and they do they it own, with they own the language they do it with the term um you know they've basically exorcised in, in publications the use of the phrase illegal immigrant uh, instead it's undocumented worker well that phrase connotes nothing it doesn't it doesn't mean anything if somebody comes into your house you don't call them an undocumented entrant you call them a burglar you you call them a thief right and then you call the police but as soon as you accept their framing of the issue and you start using their terminology, you've already lost. And so, you know, when it comes up to this topic of the energy and environment, they love to play the hypothetical game of, uh, do you believe in global warming? And if you believe in global warming, then the only way to solve it is through the Green New Deal. Well, no, stop. That's not a one-part question. You've asked whether the whether global warming and, and climate change is real. Okay. The ambient temperature of the Earth's climate has increased by two degrees Fahrenheit over the last 150 years. But it's also changed a lot over the course of the history of the 4.6 billion years that Earth has existed. We've gone through uh, cold spells, we've gone through warm spells. Now, the two degrees Fahrenheit has correlated with the Industrial Revolution. Okay, fine. What's the next, then that begs the second question, which is how much of the increase is due to human activity versus natural? But just set aside that question. The the more important question is, what are you going to do about it? If you really cared and you really believed, okay, two degrees Fahrenheit is a is a totally climactic event, then what would be the solution to solve that? And if your solution doesn't involve the most reliable source of fuel that is clean burning, that's only byproduct is steam and fuel spent fuel rods, then I would then I would posit that you don't actually care about the environment, that you don't actually care about the economy. You don't actually care about the standard of living of your fellow Americans. You care about control. 
over their lives. You care more about control of the narrative than you do about improving people's standing and standard of living. I, I totally agree. That is, and so, that is correct. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's about power. Uh, and it just came, I remember this discussion, uh, I was listening to this discussion about repressive tolerance. Are you familiar with that term? I'm not. I'm so not. Uh, I believe it was, uh, I believe it was, it was termed by Herbert Marcuse. He was a philosopher mm-hmm. back in the fifties yeah. and sixties. He was yeah. part of the Frankfurt school. And mm-hmm. what it means is that you will demand tolerance of your side, but you'll absolutely have no tolerance for the other side. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it, it was a uh, philosophy that they really, uh, they really uh, embedded deep into the, the leftist ideology. Uh, and it was in the sixties that really got kind of picked up and during the seventies, and that's what kind of all, everything changed. And that's why you see a lot of these, uh, in my opinion, like if you look at uh, TV, um, like even with the George Floyd protests, just questioning about what's going on. Hey, like maybe it wasn't that clear cut. They all sound to say, Oh, you're a racist. Oh, you're this, you're mm-hmm. that you're all the ists in the world. Yeah. But then they demand all, all the, uh, all the, you know, all the tolerance, to go to their side, like oh, right. we should tolerate it. Even right now, like when you look at the conservatives and you thought about conservatives, like it's it's almost as if we don't even have a message. We we are always defending, and they're always pulling us to the left. We're always def- defending, and they, they pull us to the left even more. Yeah, if you're not, yeah, if you're not on, if you're not on offense, you're on defense. That's it. And and they and they ha- and they have mastered it. And you're exactly right. Uh, I've heard of Marcusa. I wasn't familiar with the exact phrase, but that is so beautifully put. It, it the idea of tolerance only for your viewpoint. And it's ironic because for years it's always been like their you know the perception was that they were the more tolerant group of people that we were kind of puritanical in view and wanted to impose various doctrines on everybody. What you're actually seeing is that they want to impose their doctrines on you and on your That's why children. I call them the cult. <laughs> yeah, on your children. And, and if you don't accede to that, then you're the cultist. Then you're the xenophobe. You're the racist. You're whatever istenphobe word they've made up, you know, that they'll call you tomorrow. And the, and the, the question for us is, you know, people have jobs and lives that they don't want to lose, that they're afraid to speak out on. You know, for God's sake, they tried to cancel Joe Rogan for asking questions. The dude like hosts like WW like hosts UFC. Okay. Like and he and he hosts a show oh, that Joe Rogan's my hero, man. I like Joe Rogan. I like him. And he hosts a podcast that's enormously influential that eleven million people listen to. And that's why they wanted to cancel him. It's not because he was asking questions about, you know topics like the vaccine or about, you know, uh, protests and, and about fundamental freedom. It's not that. The New York Times has basically had to retract every lie that they told during the entire COVID over the last two years. They told us at the beginning that, you know, don't wear a mask because it's ineffective. Then they said, wear a mask. Then they said, you need to close your business. Then they said, your children are going to be mortally at risk for doing this. Now, all the lies are starting to come back. Now it's masks, quote unquote, according to Leanna Wynn, who is CNN's resident abortion doctor, uh, head of former head of Planned Parenthood, that cloth masks are a facial decoration. Now it's coming out that children have been enormously repressed by not being able to attend in-person education and that wearing a facial covering has harmed their ability to develop sociologically, emotionally, mentally, and physically, which 
millions of years of human civilization should have already told you that. Like, and it ignored the data that children were the least at risk from this virus of any other group. So all of, but yet if you said all this a year and a half ago, you would have been banned from Facebook. You would have been banned from Twitter. You would have had your Instagram pulled down. You would have had your YouTube videos demonetized. And so by controlling the message. Yeah, so, some, some it's, physicians it's a, had, had been investigated by their, by their boards. It's an, un, and it's, these are not science. These are, I, I like Ben Shapiro uses the phrase, the science trademark. That's not science. It's their vision of science. Science is not what Dr. Fauci makes up tomorrow. Science is the inquiry, what is developed, the factual inquiry that, that is, de- that is That's developed over time. That's a lot of pissed off uh, healthcare workers on Fauci. It's, <laughs> that, that'd be another. That is developed another. Over, that's developed over time. Like science means listening to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Scott Atlas and Martin Koldorf and, and you know, all these, you know, Vinay Prasad. And, and like one person doesn't determine that. That's what got Galileo in trouble. The Pope said, you know, that the earth revolve, that the sun revolves around the earth. He said, or was it Copernicus or Galileo it said, no, it was the other way around. And he got, he was called a heretic. That's not science. Science isn't what one person dictates. Science is listening to the facts and the data and making a rational cost benefit analysis of what the best course of action is to do. And so if you care about the environment, if you care about, uh, you know, economic stability and growth. You care about geopolitical tensions being reduced and having America be less involved in countries that most 95% of Americans can't point out on a map, which through no fault of their own, they don't need to, they, they have no relevance to it. Then energy independence is a requirement. And the only way to get it is in the intermediate and medium term to maximize our production of natural gas, and over the long term, develop more nuclear power. And that's, it's a simple choice. It requires political will and informed and an informed citizenry. And just as what you're talking about, it requires people having a backbone to ask questions and to push back and be unafraid because there are more of us than there are of them. They control the organs of information and I would call misinformation. They will try to shut you down if you ask questions about what the proper solution to global climate change is. They will try to shut you down if you even ask that question. It doesn't matter. There are more of us than there are of them. We can prove it at the ballot box, but we've got to push our own politicians, folks running for office, whether it's you, me, anybody else. We've got to be invested in these issues because energy security is economic security. Those two issues are not separated. Sarah Palin had it right you know, when she said, drill, 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 baby, drill. Like That's part of it. We've got to keep it, but it, it can't, it's not just that. It's all of the above. We've got to be all in, all in to make sure that we don't have to rely on other countries for our security and we can create good paying American jobs here. That's what I care about. I know that's what like a lot of people care about. And I, and I hope that we just, you know, folks get the information to be informed on this topic and stop, you know, bleeding the misinformation on it because it's too important. There's too many, there's too much at stake. Well, Sanjay, this it's, it's, it's is a really fun discussion. I actually would like to have you back sometime. Um, so, uh, I would welcome closing, that, sure. Yeah. So, in closing, um, let us and then know. Get me on, and then get me on Joe. And then get me on. And then both of us can go on Joe's podcast. <laughs> we would love that. <laughs> hey, uh, so uh, where can uh, folks find you, follow your work, and uh, what can they do to start off like in advocating for these things that you're talking about? Sure. So, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's at uh, Sanjay Narayan, S-A-N-J-A-Y-N-A-R-A-Y-A-N. Same thing on Instagram. 
uh, Facebook, uh, how people can get involved, you know, just connect, just talk to your friends, get them to listen to this podcast, you know, look at, you know, follow folks like uh, Mikey Schellenberger on Twitter and other places, folks who are like studying this issue uh, and, are, and are concerned about it. Um, because, and then when, when you hear your friends in your circle say, hey, Green New Deal sounds like a really cool idea, let them know, hey, you know, stopping cows from farting isn't going to solve climate change. But then, oh, by the way, here is my alternative to that. Because we're really good at pointing out the other side's hypocrisy. It's like a nice, fun and game for us. It's, it, it's cool. It's entertaining. But if that's the end of the discussion, the other side's going to be left still holding the bag, you know, with, with their policy and with, with the vacuum. With their, with their solutions. Side. With their solution. That's right. So end the, end the statement with, oh, and by the way, here's what would work. You know, and when you see articles in the New York Times or Texas Tribune saying, the reason we had a winter storm, uh, you know, power outage was because we we used too much natural gas and we didn't use enough wind and solar. Call out the lies. You know, if your friend starts spouting out that article, tell them, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. So like be engaged on the topic. This is like an area, this is like a topic in area where too long we're like scared to to talk about it, you know, because a lot of folks, you know, like, oh, it's global climate change, either with, you know, whatever. It's too important. The facts are on our side. The policies on our side. Just be informed and be engaged. All right, Sanjay. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, love to do it again sometime. Yeah. Take care. Bye.